Cool. I'm excited to do our second message in Joseph's life. And uh, this is, this is a, a, a life that just moves so quickly, uh, and every section of it seems to have something that I have learned from. And so I am excited to be able to share with you the things that I'm learning along the way, and maybe they'll be applicable to where you're at as well. And as Kathy said, we're going to be talking about overcoming jealousy today. So here, here's the deal. Here's what I want you to do this morning before we start. Answer me this question. What don't you have that would make you into the person you know you could be? All right. What don't you have right now that if you had it, you know that you could be that person? Or maybe a better way to put it is this up on the screen. If I only had blank, I'd make it. I could do it. I could get by. I'd overcome. Whatever you, however you want to finish that sentence, if I only had blank, what goes in the blank for you. In Jesus' day, when he was doing ministry, this story is in Matthew, 8, uh, Matthew, 18, uh, Matthew 19 and Luke 18. Both of the writers of the Gospels, Matthew and both Luke and, and Matthew, give this story of a man who approached Jesus with a blank that he had to fill in. He felt like if he had just this thing in this blank, he'd have it made. Now, we don't know this guy's name, which is a really cool thing because this is such an interesting and popular story, and you'll know it, most likely. Most of you will know it. This is such a popular story, but we don't know the name of the guy. All we know is that he was rich, he was young, and he had power. He ruled over people. We typically refer to him as the rich, young ruler. He had everything he needed to be a success. His blanks could have been filled in. Like if your blank was, if I only had riches, I could make it. If I only had power, I could make it. If I only had youth, I could make it, right? Whatever fills in that blank. But he had all three of those things. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. His blanks were all filled in. But he still comes to Jesus with a question. Actually, it was more of a request. He came to Jesus and he asked him, Lord, what must I do to inherit, do you know the story? Inherit what? Eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus listens to him and realizes he has a blank that is spiritually void. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, here's what you need to do. Go home, gather all that you have together and sell it and give it to the poor. And you know what the guy did? The guy walked away from Jesus. The Bible says he was very sad because he had many riches. Listen carefully. He is the only character in Scripture who walked away from Jesus worse than when he came. Perhaps this guy in the Bible is meant to speak to us. Not, not to so much... Uh, the story could tell us a lot of things. Like, obviously he loved what he had. He loved it too much. We can get that out of the story. Yes, he wasn't willing to give it up for eternal life. Yes, Jesus put his finger on it. No, you don't have to go home and sell all the ab and give it to the poor in order to have eternal life. Jesus was pointing out to this guy, you have got a lot of things filling in those blanks but you still know you lack something. And the thing that he lacked was a relationship with God. So Jesus put his finger on all the stuff and he said, the blank has to be your relationship with me. That is the big story. That is the, the oomph of that story. And the guy walked away and he was very sad because he wasn't willing 
to do it. He loved his blanks being filled in with being rich, being young, and being a ruler. But you know what else that story tells me? How many of you would like to be rich? How many of you would like to be young again? How many of you would like to be a ruler over people so that you get to tell them what to do? How many of you would like those things? Many people in this world would love those things. But the thing this story tells me is not that this guy was young and rich and a ruler. This, guy, this thing tells me, the story tells me that no matter what you have, you always feel like you need something else. The blanks never seem to get filled in. He had it all. But he lacked a relationship with Jesus, and Jesus put his finger on that. But no matter what we have, there's something in us that tells us we lack something else. And I would venture to say there's probably not one person in this room, including yours truly, who doesn't believe if they just had this, everything would work out. If they just had whatever goes in that blank for you, everything would work out fine. This is a malady of the spirit that every human being shares. And let out of its cage, if this is improperly placed in our lives, this spirit will kill us from the inside out. I used to think when I was a kid, I used to, we used to play games, I'm sure that you did too, and I used to, I used to want to always be Spider-Man. Do you ever want to be Spider-Man? I used to pretend I could, I used to get the, you know, get the, the two fingers down so I could shoot the web, and I used to think if I could crawl on walls, if I... If I had spidey sense, you know, then I, then I could be all of that and a slice of bread. I could really get through life if I could just, so whenever we played games, I was always Spider-Man. Yes, he was around even then. <laughs> but here's the kicker. If you dwell on that blank long enough, the spirit of jealousy that comes out of you, or the spirit that comes out of you is a spirit of jealousy and you never outgrow it. As children, we always want to be more. We always want to be something else. We always think to ourselves, if we could be this, we could make it. But no matter how old you get, that blank always seems to be there. And every one of us shares the same thing. If we just had this, everything would work out. If you dwell on that blank long enough, church, the spirit that comes out of us is a spirit of jealousy. And jealousy is an insidious road for human beings because it begins by stealing our contentment and it ends by substituting it with hatred. You're probably thinking to yourself, well, how does jealousy turn into hatred? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's the road that it takes. Pathway to jealousy is, one, it begins with gratitude. Eventually, you stop being great, great, grateful for what you have. That's where it begins. Number two, discontentment crawls in right after that. You're not happy with what you have. You're not happy with, 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 uh, with what you have, so you're not happy with what you don't have yet. Then number three, comparisons begin. If I only had this, like Jim, like Sally, like Harry, I could make it in life. Then lies take root. If I only had this, then I would be a better person. Number five, emotions follow those thoughts. And the emotion that creeps up is jealousy. This is where it gets very dangerous because number six, thoughts create actions and attitudes. And it begins with this hatred attitude. This is a relationship Joseph had with his brothers. Let me explain it to you even further. Genesis 37, 11. This is where we're picking up today. So if you want to take your Bibles, we're in Genesis 37. And this is the verse right before all the verses we're going to tackle today. This is how we begin. His brothers were what church? 
His brothers were jealous of him, but his father's, father kept all these sayings in mind. By the way, this word jealous, this word jealous is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the feelings that a husband has when he realizes his wife has been unfaithful. This word is packed with emotion. It's packed with evil. It's packed with darkness. This term is ominous. And it's used here in Genesis 37:11, so that we can understand Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. This kind of jealousy is an ominous term indicating his brothers would let this feeling draw them out into a vengeful, violent action. And that's where we get to today. They've been jealous of their brother for a long time. And you can't hold that sucker in. So verse 12 says this, Now his brothers went to pasture, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Now, I read this like, I'm sorry, not over there, over here. I read this like several times. And it always got me. It was kind of like, here I am. It seems a weird way to read this. But what I get from this is pretty simple. His brothers are where? His brothers are where? They're out in the pasture. They're taking care of the sheep. They should be doing what they should be doing in this area called Shechem. Where is Joseph? He's at home. He's where he should be. When his dad needs him, his dad is the owner, owns the flocks, owns all these things. The kids work for him. Joseph is their boss. We talked about that last week. The kids hate that. Brothers hate that. Joseph is their boss. And Joseph is right where he needs to be. When the owner says, Joseph, he's right there. Comes right up. Joseph is where he should be. However, his brothers are not. Verse 14. So Jacob said to Joseph, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock. Why do you think Jacob thinks it's not well with the brothers and with the flock? Do you think he doesn't trust them? Probably not. Go see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock. Bring them and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Now, guess how far Shechem is from Hebron? Take a guess. 50 miles. This is like walking from here to Rockford. Actually, a little further. Jacob says to Joseph, listen, I want you to go check on your brothers because they should be in Shechem taking care of the sheep. There's probably good pasture there. They've walked through this area because now they've come back through the land. They've settled in Doth in Hebron. And so he says, now go check on them and make sure they're doing what they should be doing. So Joseph says, that's fine. I'll head out. It's going to take him a couple of weeks to get there. He sends, he starts walking up to Rockford and, uh, and checking on his brother's. And my guess is Jacob was pretty sure they're not doing what they should be doing. Verse 15. And a man found Joseph wandering in the fields. Why is Joseph wandering in the fields? Because he's in Shechem and his brothers aren't. And he's going to himself, where, where are my brothers? Like, it's hard to lose 11 people in a big, big, fat flock of sheep, right? But he can't find them. So he's wandering around the field. This guy sees him. He says, who are you looking for? Uh, the manager is there. The workers are not there. By the way, <clears throat> this actually, one of the main themes of this message today is just how to be a good worker. Like these brothers were not trustworthy. Jacob didn't trust them. So he had Joseph check on them. Joseph goes to find them. They're not where they should be as anybody surprised. 
The lesson here for us is be a good worker. Make it so that somebody doesn't always have to have eyes on you. Joseph, however, is exactly the opposite. Joseph was where he should be when he needed to go find the brothers. Here we go on with the story. The man said, what are you seeking? Why are you wandering around in the field? Verse 16, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away. If you're looking for these 11 people, they've gone away. For I've heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and they found him at Dothan. You want to know how far Dothan is from Shechem? 15 miles. Yeah, 15 miles. Dothan actually means two wells. It's where the Ishmaelites and the Midianites lived, and it was great for pasturing animals, but it wasn't Shechem. His brothers weren't where they needed to be. Verse 18, and they saw him from afar. The brothers saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. It slides off your tongue, doesn't it? His brothers see their brother show up, and they begin conspiring against him to kill him. Now, If you see somebody from a distance walking towards you and you're going to have a conversation about how to kill them, my guess is you've started the conversation a little while earlier. Like that'd be hard to, okay, he's going to be here in about five minutes. Let's talk about mm, killing Joseph. My guess is they've had this conversation before and they see this as an opportunity. Why? Because every time Joseph shows up, he reminds them of what losers they are. Remember, these guys have, uh, they have killed, they have killed an entire village. They have, they have done what their father asked them not to do. Their father is embarrassed. We talked about this last week. He said, you've made me stink among the inhabitants of the land because of their behavior. They're worse, they're worse Canaanites than the Canaanites were. So Joseph shows up and all he is is a reminder to them of what losers they are. They're reminded that they're all descendants of the slaves that their mom, their dad owns or the woman that he doesn't love. Only Joseph at this time, uh, Benjamin's not born yet, only at this time was Joseph the son of the wife that the father really loved. And as soon as Joseph shows up, what's he going to talk about? More dreams. More dreams about how we're going to bow down to him and how he's going to rule over us. And they have had it. This is their worst nightmare. And he's a reminder to them that their father doesn't trust them. Oh, look, he sent Joseph to come and check on us. You ever have a relationship like that where somebody is sent to check on you? Makes you not like the one that sent the person to come and check on you. You're not trustworthy. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. (laughs) Here their hearts are laid bare. They didn't like Joseph because he was their boss and he was always getting them into trouble because they weren't doing what they should be doing, obviously. But they hated him because he reminded them of what they could never have. They could never have the love of their dad, not like he had. They could never have his pedigree. He would always be the only son of Rachel. Listen, they don't even call him by his name. Did you notice that? Here comes the dreamer. Every time Joseph showed up, he demonstrated these dreams were already coming true, that he was ruling over them, and they hated it. This is what, church, we call one simple term, straight outright jealousy. 
This is being jealous of what you can't have. Now, there's two kinds of jealousy. There's righteous jealousy. That is a real thing. In the Bible, actually, it says that in Exodus 34, 14, it says that jealous is a name for God. Isn't that interesting? For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Why is God's name jealous? Simply because when it comes to what God owns, that is rightly his. And he loves it so much he, well, he he chose not to live without it. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Because without that sacrifice, we have no chance of having a relationship with God. And God's love for us is like a love for his wife, for a husband between a wife or a wife for her husband. It's a hundred times stronger than that. That's the closest relationship we have on this earth that describes God's love for us. In fact, in Romans chapter, uh, in Romans chapter one, it says that... Uh, that's not the right passage. But in Romans, it says that uh, God's love for us never ends. Neither height nor depth nor any other thing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You rightly belong to God. God made you. God has a plan for you, and God loves you. And that's why it's a rightly way to describe God. He is jealous for you. This is why, by the way, this is why when we sing all those songs, God fights for you, this is why he fights for you. Because he loves you with that kind of intensity. And if you're here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, I don't feel loved, I don't feel needed, I feel out of place, I don't feel like I have a place to belong. You need to grab a hold of this truth that God loves you with a jealous kind of love. And that is like the only, <laughs> the only thing that we can look at God and say, jealous, I don't really get that because all I understand is jealous in a bad way. But this is jealous in a good way. Jealous to the point where he loves you incredibly. Paul said he has a divine jealousy in 2 Corinthians 11.2. He said, I feel a divine jealousy for you, the church in Corinth, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. All that simply means is that he was the shepherd of this church at Corinth for several years. And he said, while I was there, I want you to know, I have a jealous, divine jealous love for you because I want to present you to the one who owns you. This is really difficult. If you're not a pastor of a church, it's difficult for me as a pastor to explain the kind of love that, that a pastor should have for a church. It's like no other relationship on the planet. It's a divine connection. And that's what Paul's trying to explain. These are all good things because my goal as a pastor and Paul's goal as an apostle and as a pastor when he was in Corinth was to present this bride to the one who owns the, this bride, to the, to the husband. The bride being the church. There's another kind of jealousy, and that is a sinful jealousy. And this is simply when you want something God doesn't want for you. Oh, now that hurts, all right? I know that hurt. And if it didn't hurt, let me say it one more time. This is when you want something that God doesn't want for you. And this is when you get dissatisfied with God's plan for your life. And this is where the comparisons start. If I only had this, fill in the blank, everything would make sense. Let's go on, verse 20. Come on now, let's kill him, the brother said, and throw him into one of the pits. Dead body, throwing into the pits. 
Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Don't you love how that ends? Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. The root of their actions was jealousy over the dreams. They wanted to prove the dreams were wrong and so that jealousy developed into hatred and that developed into wanting to harm Joseph. You see, if Joseph's dead, the dreams are false. Joseph's a liar. There's no chance of the dreams coming true. So here's the insidiousness of it, all right? If those dreams are from God, the brothers would rather kill the dreams than let God have his way. That's jealousy on steroids. The actions were to kill the dreams by killing the dreamer and prove God false. Here's the pathway of jealousy. This is how you get there. Number one, jealousy begins by leading you down a path of what is fair. (laughs) By the way, we live in the middle of this today. What is fair? Because if it's not fair, then you begin to look at somebody else and say, they have what would be fair for me to have. Number two, jealousy breeds our discontentment over our situations. By the way, this is not new to this family. In Genesis 30, verse 1, you remember the story when Rachel wasn't having kids and Leah was? Verse 30, uh, chapter 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Look at what she says. She says to Jacob, Give me children or I will die. That's jealousy. It breeds discontentment over what you do not have. Number three, jealousy will eventually take you down the destination of feeling better when the person who has what you want gets hurt. <laughs> jealousy, I know, none of, us, none of us have experienced this. I know, I know. But jealousy will take you down a path where the third step is not I need it, but the one who has it, I want them to hurt. I hope they're harmed. And number four, when jealousy does that, it will create a desire in you to be a part of a group that hurts them. That's where his brothers are. They conspired together to hurt their brother. You ever watch a movie called Envy? It's got Ben Stiller in it. It's, ever watch this movie? It didn't, didn't make the... the it, but it's hilarious. Um, this is on tape. I don't care. All right, so uh, if you watch the movie... You know, I don't want to give it away for you. But it's also got Jack Black in it. It's also in it. Um, and uh, they're, they're friends. And uh, to make a long story short, one of them creates a silly experiment that apparently takes off. And one of them gets really rich really fast. And the other guy goes down this spiral, follows every one of those steps until he's only happy if the other guy has everything taken away. Listen, <clears throat> This is the basis of modern-day politics. This is the way politicians play on us. You know that, right? You watch any politician talk, and this is the path they'll walk you down. They'll say, you don't have what you need. They have what you need. You should get what they have for yourself. And if you can't get what they have for yourself, you should want them to be harmed. And let's get together and harm them. That's the steps. Politicians, not all of them. Yes, most of them. They play on our hearts. They say, you want, they, 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 
play the chord of jealousy and we all sing along. It's really important that we understand this. This is the day and age in which we live. Why would jealousy want you to harm others? Simply because I need blank to succeed. Goes to why do you have blank and I don't goes to, I'm going to make sure your blank is taken away from you so you and I are on equal ground. The insidiousness of this emotion is that you can even take the blessings of God and fill in the blank. I want God's blessings in this way. You have God's blessings in this way. You need to give me those blessings so we can be on equal ground. And it comes to a point where it's like, should we even talk to one another about the blessings of God because we don't want to play that song of jealousy for the other person to start singing along? So I don't know about you, but it's like, if, we're, if I'm blessed in some way, I kind of, I kind of, I want to tell it to people, but I want to like, like make it an easy feed for them. Like God's been so good to me, but he's been good to you too. But God's been like, God gave me this blessing, but I'm sure God's going to give you the blessing. You know, it's kind of like, you just want to, you don't want to play the song of jealousy for the other person to fall into the trap of singing along. And yet I want you to know that God's word is very clear that when we are blessed, we're supposed to make a big deal out of it. Did you know that? In fact, here's one verse I love. Verse, uh, Psalm 145, verse 4 says, One generation shall commend your works to another. And shall, what does it say, church? And shall what? Declare your mighty acts. How do you declare God's mighty acts by not saying anything? We declare God's mighty acts. And we, and we don't do it to brag on what we have and the blanks that we have filled in that somebody else doesn't have. And we do it because God is blessing us and we are supposed to rejoice with those who, who rejoice. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the mighty um, the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. We sing about what God is doing because God is a gracious God. And the hardest thing for us sometimes, and this is the insidiousness of jealousy, the hardest thing is to hear about the blessing somebody else has and not wish they were my own. supposed to rejoice when we see what God is doing in the lives of others. But jealousy will seek to take that away from us. Verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, that these guys were going to kill Joseph, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit, I will do that part of it, but don't lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to their father. Even here, I'm tempted to, to, to question. Like we're looking at Reuben and going, Reuben, he's such a good guy. He doesn't want to kill jo- Joseph. I think Reuben here is trying to earn the, the, the love of his dad back. Reuben has done a very nasty thing by sleeping with his father's concubine. That's a bad deal. Reuben has lost the respect and trust of his dad. And I think this is a move from Reuben even here to gain back the respect and trust of his dad. I saved Joseph when everybody else wanted to kill him. Verse 23, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water on it, in it, thank goodness. They tore off the symbol of Joseph's blessings. They said, we're tired of it. We, they tore it off. 
The tunic represented Joseph's position as their boss. We talked about that last week. It represented the greater love their father had for Joseph over them. It represented everything Joseph had that they wanted. So they tore it off Joseph. They beat him and threw him in a pit. And then verse 25 begins this way. And then they sat down to eat. (laughs) Uh, Does that not strike you as funny? Is, Is it just me? They just beat the living daylights out of their brother stripped him down, threw him into a well that was a long way down, left him there, and cooked dinner. Do you see the callousness of these guys? They hated Joseph. Absolutely cold. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. They were traitors. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. By the way, Ishmael was their, Ishmael the person was their great uncle. All of these people were descendants of Ishmael. They're selling Joseph to their own family as a slave. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our our hand not be upon him for he's our brother, our own flesh. Why would we do such a mean thing? (laughs) And the brothers listened to him. Listen, it's not simple profit they're after. And it's not to save Joseph. That's not what this is about. This is about getting rid of Joseph, getting some extra pay along the way. It's a win-win. Verse 28, Midnight traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Regular price for a slave was 30 shekels. (laughs) Note, shepherds made about eight shekels a year. They didn't kill him because they had to be on the same page with the story to their dad. So verse 29 says, when Reuben returned to the pit, he was probably off doing something so that they got rid of him really quick, rid of Joseph really quick. So Reuben wouldn't be a fly in the ointment. Reuben returned to the pit, saw Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and returned to the brothers and said, the boy is gone. And where, where shall I go? See that? Not where did, what did you do with Joseph? Not, is he okay? No concern about Joseph. Instead, Reuben is thinking to himself, Joseph, if he saves him, he's going to get in good with his dad. So he says, hey, where's Joseph? If Joseph is gone, I can't explain this to my dad. Where am I going to go now? Reuben can't go home with this story. So they had to come up with a story. And here's the story they came up with. Verse 31, they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in his blood. Vicious goats. And they, said the robe, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. They still don't call him by name. Verse 33, and he identified it and said, this is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. The irony of this cover-up is they do the same thing this family has been doing for generations. Look at this. Jacob used his brother's clothes to deceive his father Isaac. Laban used Rachel's clothes to deceive Jacob into thinking this was Rachel when it was really Leah. And Jacob's sons used Joseph's clothes to deceive him. I also want you to know one other thing. They did not bring this robe to their dad. They sent it UPS. The callousness of these guys. They sent it by messenger to their dad and said, ask dad, 
is this Joseph's robe? They knew it was Joseph's robe. They hated that robe. Verse 34. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for them. His father refused to be comforted. He wanted to mourn until he died. And thus endeth the story. What does this tell us? First of all, this tells me it is really dangerous to allow yourself to be jealous. You become a whole different person. So number one, overcome jealousy before it overcomes you. Try to be the best you can be in the situation you are in. Stop comparing your situation to those around you. Keep your eyes on Jesus and not on others. Figure out what God has for you and learn to love it. Oh, so good. I should have wrote it down. I'll say it one more time. Stop comparing your situation to those around you. Keep your eyes on Jesus and not on others. And learn to figure out what God has for you and learn to love it. Put jealousy in this place. Do you know in Romans 12, 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Which do you think it's easier to do? Weep with those who weep or rejoice with those who rejoice? What do you think? Weep with those who weep? Rejoice with those who rejoice? Here's my thought. We even have a phrase that backs my thought up. Misery loves company. It is easier to weep with those who weep. Why? Because when we rejoice with those who rejoice, we're only reminded of what we still don't have. Is it easy for you to rejoice with the person who got your job? The job you wanted? Is it easier for you to rejoice with somebody who gets a raise while you get left behind? Is it easier for you to rejoice with somebody whose kids are doing well while yours are needing to get bailed out? What is easier to do? I think it's easier to weep with those who weep because when we rejoice with those who rejoice, we hear that guitar string and we think jealousy. It's insidious. When someone gets a scholarship you wanted, somebody gets a grade you worked so hard for, somebody else buys a house you wish you could have had, somebody's car doesn't break down your gears all the time. It's hard. Put jealousy in its place. And here's how you do it. Learn to rejoice with those who rejoice. Number three, admit the path you're on. Am I really jealous of those around me? Do I struggle with filling in the blank in my life? Worse, do I attack others (laughs) because they have what I want? This is difficult. The brothers would have rather seen God's use of Joseph stop than see him succeed any further in life. Insidious. Number two, so what? Do your best wherever God has put you. This is a great so what. Joseph succeeded because he did so well at whatever he was put to do. Now you might say to yourself, well, Craig, he only did so well because he had it so well. I mean, his dad liked him. He had the robe of many colors. He was a boss. He had it easy. So it was easy for him to really apply himself. Ah, I beg to differ. And here's how I know that. How would you like to be a slave sold in Egypt? Nope, I would not like that either. And yet, Joseph became the best slave ever. 
He became the best. He said, I'm going to be a slave, and I'm going to be the best doggone slave that ever walked the plains of Egypt. In fact, he went to the house of Potiphar, and here's a verse that shows how good of a slave he was. Genesis 39.6. So he, Potiphar, this owner of Joseph, left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. His owner saw that he was such a good slave, he said, Joseph, you just take care of everything. Now, you might think, well, okay, but he was in a rich person's house. It was easy for him there. There was a good-looking woman to look at every day. We'll get to her next week. It's a lot of fun. But maybe he had it easy there. Oh, I've got some other stories to tell you. You need to stick around. But one of them is the good-looking woman lies about him. He gets thrown in jail. Now he's a slave prisoner in Egypt. By the way, prisons in this day doesn't have, didn't have 14 K, or 4K TV, all right? This is a totally different thing. And you know what he did when he was in prison? He didn't complain. He didn't moan. He didn't, he didn't say how rough he had it. Do you know what he did? He became the best doggone prisoner that ever was put into an Egyptian jail. Genesis 39.23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with, it, with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. So lest we say Joseph has it easy and we don't, the principle here is absolutely true. Wherever God puts you, be the best you you can be. Because you're there for a reason. A lot of us get into these situations and we think to ourselves, if I only could get out of this, I'd be a better person. If I only had this blank filled in, I'd be a better person. Joseph said, whatever situation I'm in, I'm going to be not only content, but I'm going to be the best me that I can be. Does your boss stink? Welcome to the worker's world. Could you do a better job than your boss? I don't know. But probably everybody around you thinks the same thing. My advice to you is be the best you you can be. It's not that Joseph got lucky. It's just that he did whatever he could do the best wherever God put him. This worked for Joseph, whether he was a volunteer, paid, or he was told what to do. People of God don't make a distinction because we believe wherever God puts us is where God wants us. I had a job when I got out of high school. It's one of the first jobs that I had I was working in a department store with a bunch of people that were goof-offs. Like, that's probably, they were nice people and everything, but we just kind of goofed off a lot. There was a lot of business in the store at certain hours, and so we would play games and we'd mess around, and I was a goof-off just like them. Behind the counter, there was a two-way mirror so that when somebody showed up at the counter, you could actually go around front and, and uh, sell them whatever they needed at the time. And so we would always gather behind the counter, behind the two-way mirror, and we would goof off back there until a customer showed up. But once in a while, the boss came by, came out of his office and walked down on the floor. And when that happened, the phones would ring, all these, all these communications would start. He's on the floor and we'd scatter like cockroaches. And we'd start straightening up shelves and looking around and making sure we're hard workers because the boss was around. And when the boss is around, you definitely want to be a diligent worker. But then as soon as he goes back up into his office, you go back behind the two-way mirror. You'd be the the goof-off that you know you can be. I never considered the impact that had on the spiritual influence that I had at that place. I was communicating something to them. I was communicating to those folks that I worked for, the guy that sits in his office upstairs. When in reality, church, I should have looked at it like I was working for Jesus. 
This is a very biblical principle. There's a verse I want to share with you in Ephesians 6 that says this, bondservants, uh, translated loosely these days, that is, anyone who gets a paycheck, obey your earthly bosses with fear and trembling. With a, what kind of heart, church? With a sincere heart. I was not sincere. With a sincere heart, as you would who, church? As you would Christ. Not by way of eye service when they're looking at you, not as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the what, church? From the heart. This hurts, doesn't it? From the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord whatever, uh, whether he is a bondservant, that's a worker, or he's free, that's a volunteer. In other words, church, whatever you do, whatever position you're in, even whether you're setting up chairs on a, on a Sunday morning, you'd be the best chair setter upper that ever walked the face of Fountain View Recreation Center. That's right. Well, you, could be, you could be volunteering, you could be paid. Whatever it is you do, you do it to the best of your ability. Why? Because we don't do it so that we impress the boss when he comes around. We do it because this is where God put us and we're going to be the best blank, whatever it is that you're being at the time, that you could possibly be. Our boss is Christ. And by the way, he gives us the positions to begin with. So don't make your supervisor dip. dip. Over-communicate so they don't have to worry. Tell them when you drop the ball. Don't let them find it out on their own. Let them know that you are a trustworthy steward. No matter what you're given to do, do it to your best of your ability. And you might be thinking here saying, well, I'm lucky I don't have to do that. I'm the boss. Well, if you keep reading, sorry, in uh, Ephesians 6, the very next verse, it says, bosses or masters, do the same to the workers. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there's no partiality with him. So whether you're a boss or you're a worker, you got a boss. And that boss is Jesus Christ. Discontentment makes people work poorly. But contentment will make you stand out. Third thing I want to share with you is simple this. Jealousy is rooted in discontent with what God has permitted in your life. This is the hardest one of all. Jealousy is rooted in discontent with what God has present, uh, permitted in your life. I don't know why you are where you are in life. I don't, and you may not either. But I do know this. You're not there alone. You're right where God wants you to be. So you can still be the best whatever fills in that blank. Truck driver, chair setter upper, prisoner. <laughs> be the best that you can be because you know you're responsible to the Lord for this. And I don't know why you don't have blank yet. I don't know if you'll ever get blank, but you don't need blank to be better. That's just in your imagination. You can be the best you can be wherever you are because you have to believe God has put you where you are so that you can be the best you you can be. We may not be ready for what we want so badly. We're often jealous of platforms that would crush us. Saul crumbled under the leadership of kingship. We're often jealous of objects that will corrupt us. Some stuff we may want may make us bad people. 
We're often jealous of blessings that are not for us. David wanted to build the temple, but it was Solomon's job to do it. His son got to do it, and David was, oh, I really want this. We're often jealous of relationships God didn't design for us. David wanted Bathsheba. She was not for him. Samson wanted... Samson wanted... Delilah. So need I say more? If you don't have the job you want, the position you want, the things you want, the, the girl you want, the boy you want, if you don't have the kids you want, if you don't have the life you want, it's not because... Life is random and the stars got lined up poorly for you. It's that God has a purpose for you right there. So be the best you can be right there. Because until you're the best you can be right there, you won't move on to right here. Jealousy thrives on discontentment, church, so don't let it. Don't let your empty blank ruin your life. Don't let it get you down. What made Joseph a good leader wherever he was at? Contentment. What made his brothers bad people wherever they're at? Discontentment. And it's as simple as that. How do I know that I'm content with God? Even in the smallest parts of life, I do my job as though I'm serving Christ personally. And so I leave you with this great last verse. It's so good. First, first Corinthians 10.31. Church, If you can read it from this side, uh, my hat's off to you, but let's try and read this together, all right? So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do you know why Paul chooses chooses eat or drink? Because everybody eats or drinks. This covers everything in between, even to the simplest parts of life. Whether you eat or you drink, or whatever else you're doing. Do it so that God can be glorified. That's how you kill jealousy. Kill it. Let's pray. So Father, I'm grateful that we got to tackle the story of Joseph and his brothers that let jealousy turn them into these terrible individuals where they would be so comfortable talking about murdering Joseph that it just seemed like an everyday conversation. And we look at them and we think to ourselves, how did they get there? How did Cain get to where he got? How did Saul get to where he got? How, how did these people get to where they got? And then we realize, Lord, it's all because those folks and us feel like we have blanks that you haven't filled in for us yet. And if we just had them, we could be better. So Lord, teach us how to be content. Teach us how to be the best, best person we can be, wherever we at and whatever we're doing. In that way, Lord, let us be your hands and your feet and your heart to those around us. Teach us how to be content and how to love it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.